0: we in 24, but uh, the Lord had commanded them that they wouldn't pervert justice. And then uh, he talked about the three feasts that were mandatory uh, for them to attend, the males to attend each year. And then he promised them that he was giving them his angel to lead them and guide them. And that's the angel of the Lord and that uh, the Lord uh, working uh, with them would teach them to drive their enemies from the land so that uh, incrementally they would come into possession of it. So in 24, this encounter with the Lord and their receiving the law and all of that experience continues and uh, says, now he said to Moses, come up to the Lord you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. So that would be Aaron's two sons, the the continuation of the priesthood after Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. So the Lord is going to beckon them even closer, and then Moses uh, directly into His presence, uh, where he'll see some of the glory of the Lord, not the Lord Himself. And we're going to discuss one point in this chapter regarding seeing the presence of the Lord, but this command that the Lord is giving them is so that they might draw near to him. Number one, worship, and then also in the process, they're going to receive commandments, particularly in this case, in regard to the construction of some of the temple and um, the articles that are supposed to be in it, the Ark of the Covenant and uh, the table of showbread and the lampstand that is to be there. So the Lord is beckoning them uh, to himself that uh, he can relay all of this to him in verse two, Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with you. So the Lord's creating this distinction of Moses is most clearly the leader and that the priesthood serving with him and then the elders serving with him serve the people. So the Lord distinctly is separating these groups from one another so that everyone understands the level of relationship that each of these people and groups has with the Lord. So in verse 3 it says, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. Now, it's really difficult for us, reading this in English, to understand the timeline. Of this. And I'm not implying that I've sorted it out and I can explain it to you in order. What I'm saying is that the way the Hebrew language is recorded, uh, we get overviews and then the Lord tells us things that are going to take place. And for instance, right here, then Moses is going to come back, all of this transpired and relay it to the people. And then the people are going to say, Yep, we agree with all of that. So we're getting a flash forward to that moment where Moses is going to return with all of these commandments and the people are going to say, yeah, we'll obey that. We know full well they do not. right? Before we even get all of this information recorded of the interaction between Moses and God, right? Moses is going to come down off the mountain and the people are going to be engaged in tremendous sin. So... We're getting pieces here of how things transpired, and we have to sort of let the passage assemble itself as we move along. So all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has said we will do. Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, the twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Keeping with the same practice that the Lord has set forward, that any altar that they build in order to offer their sacrifices on is not to have any engraving on it. It's just to be earthen stones mounded up and then perform your sacrifice. God makes the point in explaining that he doesn't want anything ornate created by men so that in the act of worship their focus moves to that which is ornate and away from God. So it's a good practice uh, that we see throughout the Scripture of not creating anything in our environment of worship that causes people to focus on something other than the Lord. Moses took the blood. All, all the people ha- has said we will do and be obedient there in verse 7. Um, I guess I've skipped quite a bit, haven't I? So um, we'll back way up. How about that? I'll read it in order. Verse 4, Moses wrote all the words. And rose early and he built the altars in verse 5. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Uh, So remember there in verse 5 that they're offering both burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings, because shortly we're going to see that especially the leadership of Israel is eating in the presence of the Lord. Uh, We can assume very safely, that what they're eating is this peace offering that is provided here. You have the burnt offering and the peace offering. Peace offerings were meant to be like fellowship offerings, that when an individual brought them, a burnt offering would be entirely consumed. You bring an ox and say, this is a burnt offering to the Lord. The whole thing is burned to the Lord. He gets all of it. You bring a fellowship or a peace offering, then everyone that's involved gets a portion and gets to consume it. If this is a relationship with you and someone else that there's been sin involved and you're wanting to create peace in that relationship and with God in the process, then when the sacrifice is brought, a portion is burned to the Lord, a, the priest gets a portion of the sacrifice, the bringing, person bringing and the person receive. Everybody eats God consuming his portion through fire. The idea is we're all sharing this meal together. So they're commanded, both burnt offerings and sacrifice of peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in a basin, half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read, in the hearing of the people, And they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. Now, as we move through this explanation, uh, the entirety of Exodus and particularly Leviticus, we're going to see things like that happen a couple different times, where the book of the law and the sacrifice and the priesthood and the people and all of the articles and utensils, everything gets sprinkled with blood, and you know you approach this idea. And it, you know, you think of it literally, of like, that's gross. Like, you know, I wanted to show up at church and experience something beautiful and pleasant instead of just flinging blood everywhere. It's gross. Well, here's the thing: Jesus Christ knows his sacrifice is coming. We just read about it in First Corinthians chapter 11, and he leaves from that last supper and he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and in prayer, he's so overwhelmed with the separation from God that's going to occur, that he begins to sweat great drops of blood. The sprinkling of Jesus Christ's blood begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's taken into custody and he's beaten. Bloodshed continues. His beard is ripped out. The bloodshed continues. Crown of thorns beaten into his head. The bloodshed continues. They scourge him mercilessly from head to foot as blood sprays everywhere. And they march him bleeding through the streets to Calvary and pound spikes through his arms and legs. It's bloodshed. Jesus Christ's sacrifice is sprinkling everyone in proximity with Jesus Christ's blood. His blood is being spattered everywhere. We read this. See, all of these things you're going to read repeatedly. The Lord saying to Moses, I want you to do this exactly according to how I've showed you. When you build the temple, when you build the ark, when you write, I want you to do this exactly according to how I've showed you. Jesus Christ's death, according to Colossians, was the substance of the shadows we had seen all throughout history. You know, the substance is Jesus Christ, not these rituals, not these practices. You know, there are people literally that want to take us back to these sacrifices, to these goats, to these lambs, to these oxen. You know, reestablish the temple, reestablish the priesthood. Let's begin. Jesus Christ is our high priest. Jesus Christ is our sacrifice. Everything that we're reading here points to him, including this great bloodshed that's described. Then Moses, verse 9, went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. And it was like the very heavens in its clarity. And on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hand. So they saw God, and they ate and drank. So, unfortunately, this English translation does not do us well in understanding they saw God. It simply is implying that at best they saw his feet. You can see it described there in verse 10. It is not that they saw God in entirety or in his person. It would appear that they went a short distance up the mountain to eat the meal of the covenant, which must be consistent of the flesh of the peace offering we read about in Exodus 24, verse 5. I ask you to take note of that. They saw enough of God to know that he was there, But the scripture clearly tells us no one can see God's face and live. So consider Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12, that says, And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words. You saw no form. You only heard a voice. So we're getting further explanation of this experience. They're aware God is there. They are experiencing His presence. They make mention of seeing His feet. So perhaps they even saw a portion of Him. But the idea that they just full-faced saw God in the person is not what this passage is implying at all. They were there, and they knew that the Lord was right there with them. I don't know if you've had experiences Like that along the way. Maybe it wasn't even all that spiritual an experience or tremendous thing. You just suddenly knew, oh, God is actually paying attention to me. God is actually taking care of me. God is actually working in my environment. When you become aware of that, it's deeply moving. Consider Exodus 33. We'll get to it later at verse 20 where he said, you cannot see my face, speaking to Moses, for no man shall see me and live. So we have to work these two passages together, these several statements about the Lord, and understand they definitely knew the Lord was right there. They were having this experience, but as far as seeing him, that was limited in some way. Look at verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So this first occasion where we're becoming aware that the Ten Commandments particularly are going to be written on tablets of stone and given to Moses. I think it's significant to know, again, that God wrote these laws, not man. We get the impression uh, from certain people, uh, you know, even serious scholars that look back and say, "Oh well, you know, this written form of the law is nothing new. Several other, you know, uh, nations and peoples around Israel they had their own written and codified law. They want to point in Egypt and." and say there he you know, had his own written law. And so you know it's very similar to what Moses wrote. Moses was just copying the Egyptians. Well, I mean, a bunch of these laws, as we've spoken about, uh, are what we would more describe as laws of nature. Okay? Uh, you know it's wrong, whether you've figured this out in your head or not, you know it's wrong to kill other people. No one has to tell you that because you don't want to be killed yourself. The fact that you don't want to be killed is the law written on your heart telling you I shouldn't kill someone else. So it's more a natural law than necessarily a law specifically designed and written by God. It is. I'm not trying to take away from that. But to imply, oh, well, other rulers of the world realized these truths and they had written them down. So really Moses is borrowing from them. Not at all. Moses isn't borrowing anything. If God writes three laws and hands them to Moses, that's the law that Moses gets, right? If God writes two laws, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, all of the rest of the laws contained, then that's what Moses is going to get. Moses gets ten. Because God said so. This is the law we all need to abide by. Stick this in your mind. Go home and dwell on it. If we could just get our culture to... Always, without ever breaking any of the other nine, if we could just get them to obey one of the laws, they would then, in part, keep all of the other laws. If you absolutely would never lie, then you can't murder. Keep one of the laws, and you keep them all. We don't keep any of the laws. This is why the Lord can condemn us of breaking all the laws when we break one. Because our hearts are not bound by it. This law is far above us. This is not a law created by men. This is a a law created by God for our sake, for our benefit. The Lord is providing this to us to protect us. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua. So unlisted up until this point. Now Joshua is listed amongst them. You know, you have Moses' assistant, and Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, "Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and her are with you. If any men or any man has a difficulty, let him go to them." It sounds good in premise. (laughs) It turns out horrible before it's all done. You know, you get questions, you need directions, ask Aaron. They do ask Aaron, and Aaron produces a golden cow for them, introduces them to very pagan worship. So then Moses went up into the mountain, and a cloud covered the mountain. Now the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. An unspeakable experience uh, for Moses, obviously, at the moment. And we're going to see, as we continue through this, that the glory that Moses experiences of the Lord... And being in his presence causes him to come down from the mountain, radiating that glory, shining uh, the glory of the Lord to the people around him. Uh, so it's it's beyond uh, you know an earthly experience or anything that we could describe. Um, many years ago, um, you know, might be a shock to some of you, but most of you are aware. I was in jail; I had turned myself in part of my getting right with the Lord. And there in jail, I was, you know, the only guilty guy there. Everybody else was innocent, horrible place to hang out. But, um, I share my faith with a lot of the guys that were there because I was, I was literally in the process of leaving that world and walking with the Lord. So a handful of guys, usually backslidden Christians would attach to me and we would have Bible studies and, uh, you know, get to know one another. And one particular night, uh, we were sitting in my cell and um, this guy, Brad, that I was with, um, he, born into Christianity, raised in Christianity, made a mess of his life, uh, walked away from all of that. There in jail, as we were talking, he was, he was rededicating his life to Christ. He had gotten a Bible and we started having Bible studies. And on this one particular night, we're sitting in my cell and we're just talking about what the Lord is doing in his life. And I'm ex- he's angry because he's in jail. And I'm saying to Brad, look, I mean, don't you deserve this? Like, didn't you commit this crime? And we finally get around to, okay, I did this. But I was trying to get right with God, so couldn't have God like kept me from coming here. And I said, well, maybe God could have. Uh, but then I take him through the process of looking at himself And he comes to the conclusion that I wouldn't have gotten right with the Lord unless I'd come to jail. And so now the discussion moves to, okay, so maybe the Lord literally timed both of us going to jail that we would sit in this room and share our faith with one another. And he has like full-on Holy Ghost breakdown. He's just losing his mind over no kidding you know this is how he's in jail literally saying this is how much god loves me that he would smash my life into this little tiny box so i'd have to sit here so while we're doing this he's just like crying and losing his mind and i think i've shared this with you before moments later other inmates opened my cell door and said you you need to hide that you're going to get busted and Brad and i are saying we need to hide what What are you talking about? And they said, we can hear the radio playing out here. Guards find out you guys have that radio in there. You're going to be in serious trouble. We're like, we don't have any radio. And they're like, yeah, we can all hear the music and the singing out here. We're in my room reading our Bibles. Six guys sitting at the iron picnic table outside my door are hearing singing and music. You explain it. The glory of the Lord. When the Lord is present. What is that like? What does that look like? What is that experience like? We've all had tastes of it. Don't be robbed of it. You know, was it moments with your kids where your joy just filled your heart and you were especially appreciative of all that the Lord gave you? Was it a moment like that? Was it some big turning point? In your life where you came to a realization of your relationship? What was that moment where you fully understood the glory of the Lord and what you were experiencing? Moses is experiencing it right now. He's in the presence of the Lord. He's being moved by this experience. Look at what happens in verse 1 of 25. The Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly? God has always loved cheerful givers, Old Testament, New Testament. If we can't give it to the Lord, time, money, energy, you know, whatever it is, if there isn't a joy, then God, I wouldn't say He's angry or offended by it, but keep it to yourself. If you're not happy about giving it to the Lord, then there's certainly not going to be any or much benefit to whatever you're giving, whatever you're doing, whatever you're experiencing. Uh, I I, I certainly don't want my children to receive from me and be brokenhearted over what they're receiving. Uh, We need to give to the Lord in a cheerful way. For everyone who gives it willingly, with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple and scarlet thread or linen, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins, dyed red badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings. Just so you shall make it. So quite a list of gifts that the Lord is expecting. You know, um, it is good to have an attitude when receiving gifts of just saying, Whatever the Lord desires, whatever you want to give, to have the humility to just accept what is given. But God also has the right to say, no, this is specifically what I want. These are the gifts that I'm expecting. Think about that in a different way uh, for ourselves here. If God, let's say, for instance, calls us to the ministry, He is the one who gets to say where and how we're going to minister. Not us. He is the one. We have a certain mindset that we've developed that's based entirely upon our own perception. And let's face it, right? The prophet very clearly tells us that our heart is untrustworthy. We shouldn't trust our own judgment. God knows you, understands you, and he will put you where you need to be if he's going to give you something, he gets to say how it's going to be. If he's going to demand of us something, he gets to say what it's going to be demanded of. We need to be people who accept the requests of the Lord. You know, whatever it is that he demands of us, that's what our heart should be ready to do. There's a great blessing in that. You know, honestly, you know, if the Lord demands great wealth from us like this, silver, gold, and all these precious stones, if we give to Him of that, the Lord is going to expose to us what's going on in our heart. Oh, I'm very willing. Oh, wait a minute. That's the list? Okay, then we begin to give to the Lord. And now all kinds of stuff becomes exposed in your own heart and your own mind. Um, Joe Foch, uh, maybe I'm just rambling. Joe Foch, pastor of Calvary Chapel in Philadelphia, has... Uh, Put it this way, you know, as pastors, we thought that the Lord was calling us into the ministry so that we could build the kingdom. And what we discover over time is God has called us into the ministry that he might build us. He's working on us. The gifts, the requests, the demands that he makes of us. At first, you may look at it and think too much can't do it. This is crazy that God would ask this of me. I can tell you this, you give into that. And let his work be done in your life. What's going to come to you in return is so immeasurable. You'll feel foolish for ever having complained in the process. What God demands of us is never going to take things away from us. It's always going to provide for us. 25.10 They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length. A cubit and a half its width a cubit and a half, its height. So we're going to get a bunch of cubits. And uh, we should all know that a cubit is roughly 18 inches. It's roughly 18 inches. It's the distance from the tip of your elbow, uh, depending on who you talk to, the center of the hand or the tip of the fingers. But an arm's length is what is being implied. 18 inches is a safe place uh, to describe a cubit as. So a cubit and a half is going to be the entire length of this, you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it and make on it a molding of gold all around, a trimmed edge all the way around. Now, uh, for instance, the description we get to later, the lid of this arc is solid gold, and given its measurements, it would weigh somewhere around 700 pounds, the lid. So... The box is hardwood, acacia wood, overlaid with gold. And they had very skilled artisans and techniques for gold uh, embossing and overlaying, where they would hammer the gold to foil. Just continue to pound and pound and work on sections until it was thin foil. Heat the surface, heat the gold leaf, lay it on it, and brush it down. And it molds. To whatever surface it's being put on. Do that over and over again. Thick layer of gold when you're done and all the details of the carved artistry are now showing through. So very skilled ancient method of overlaying with gold. Here the Lord wants the box made from wood overlaid with gold and we'll see that the uh, lid is to be solid gold. So overlay with pure gold inside and out You shall overlay it and make it a molded golden edge all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, put them on its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, two rings on the other side. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Uh, The acacia wood holds form better than gold. You make a solid staff of gold and it's going to bend. Pure gold is very, very soft metal. So the hardwood is to lay a foundation to put the gold all over. It also speaks of the humility that is contained inside the glory of God. So you make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold. You shall put holes into the rings on the side of the ark. The ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from them. You shall put into the ark the testimony, which I will give you, the, the law, the ten commands commandments, the written word of God, is to be contained inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, there's lots of stuff about the Ark that's said and thought. and It's mostly untrue. Um, there is no evidence that Adolf Hitler ever found the Ark of the Covenant, you know, in case you saw the movie somewhere along the way. Um, you know, people that look inside it do not burst into flames, you know, things like that aren't true. People who have touched it in the past have died. We have the whole instance with Uzziah and others. So, uh, you know, there are just things about the Ark that people think and believe that don't come from the truth of God's Word. Uh, one of the things that's going around now is where is the Ark located today? There's great speculation over that because uh, the um, uh, Temple uh, Institute in Israel they insist that they have everything it would take in order to rebuild the temple and start uh, performing worship there, which implies they've got the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark of the Covenant belongs inside the temple. Um, When questioned about that, they get just really vague and want to talk about how you don't need to worry about it. Um, They've got that under control too. There are some who insist they have seen it in Ethiopia, that uh, it was stored there. And there's, Some good cause to think that that perhaps it was removed out of Israel and transported there. There was a big body of Christians in Ethiopia, one of the earliest developments of Christianity outside of Israel. You had Stephen that spoke to the Ethiopian eunuch, and he returned home to serve Candace, and Christianity was born. So you can do your own research. The Ark of the Covenant. We don't know where it is. Simple as that. Got that? So... Um, you're going to run into people who want you to contribute to their ministry and you know they're going to find it and it's going to be this great glorious thing. I can tell you this if or when the Ark of the Covenant is needed, God will provide it uh, we don't need uh, you know people are like oh we need the temple rebuilt I, I don't need the temple rebuilt I, I just don't I-, I need Jesus Christ to return that's what he told me I needed. Focus myself upon the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That's all I have to do. Okay. There's a world that's going to occur after Jesus Christ's return that needs the temple and needs the Ark of the God. Co- I don't need it. Okay. There, there needs to be an agreement made with Israel that they're going to be able to perform their sacrifices and they're going to pseudo-sign on the dotted line with the Antichrist. So we need the Ark of the Covenant and we need the temple for the Antichrist and for those people. But we don't need it. I'm saying that in a very serious way. There are people that get caught. Oh, we need, oh, we need to find Noah's Ark. That's what we need. If we could only find Noah's Ark, wouldn't that be a testimony to the world? Hear what Jesus is saying. The world's not going to listen to us. Okay? They're going to hate us. They're going to despise us. What do you think would happen if we showed up and said, we found Noah's Ark? There'd be a group headed out to burn it almost immediately. No joke. There there are people that hate our faith and are trying to destroy it. How does your faith come? How does your faith come sitting right here this morning? The Word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. The thing that's going to affect you is not the experience, it's not the artifact, right? Right? Everybody's all fascinated with these artifacts. We need to have these things. We need to you know have James's severed hand you know because he put his hand up when they were about to cut his head off so they they have James's hand in a glass box. You can go look at it, probably not James's hand. it's probably somebody else's hand it, It's so stupid you know this stuff that Listen, it's not just my personal hang-up with it, right? Moses here, we're going to turn the chapters, and Moses is going to make that brass serpent, right? Put it up on top of the pole. Anybody who's sick in the entire camp, millions of people, just look up at the serpent, you'll be made well. Those that did were. Years following, they're now worshiping the bronze serpent. The nation of Israel has made a temple for the bronze serpent, right? Good, righteous king finally goes in takes that thing out in the street and smashes it to pieces. And his summary of that profoundly important artifact is, that is a thing of brass. (laughs) I love that summary. This is not a very valuable piece of Jewish history. This is not a very valuable piece of Mosaic history. This is a piece of brass. What does he mean? We serve the living God. Not some man-made thing. Even if it is from our faith, even if it is from our history, we cannot worship this. He gets rid of it. The people literally gathered the pieces and in secret bronzed it back together and went back to worshiping it. We need to keep our pagan, sinful hearts from falling into, even being fascinated with things that are all shadows and types of the substance. Jesus Christ is our one important article of worship. 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. You shall make two cherubim of gold, hammered work, so not overlaid, hammered, cast, molded. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat make one cherub at one end the other cherub at the other end you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of the one piece which is the mercy seat the lid of the ark of the covenant the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above covering the mercy seat with their wings and they shall face one another the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and on the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you there. I will meet with you. I will speak with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So this Uh, commandment that is given and the construction that is given, this is going to be the place where the Lord comes to speak, particularly with Moses and with the priests who are the leaders of Israel. Mercy seat. The place where God dwells, the place where God's presence can be known, the place where his messages can be received by his people is the place of mercy. What a wonderful example of our whole faith. It isn't judgment. It's not wrath. It's not sin and the dew that is to come. It is mercy. Grace. Goodness. Kindness. Almost all of our conflicts, earthly conflicts, can be solved with grace. Well, they did me wrong, and they need to be held accountable. Well, let's go talk to them. We talk to them, and they're not willing. And so, what's it going to take for you to get along with this person? Grace. Mercy. That's all it takes. You know, marital counseling, really easy. Grace. Give the other person grace. Be forgiving. Do you have a forgiving heart? Is that how people think of you, think of me? As being gracious and forgiving? We've talked about the characteristics of fathers handed down to children. I see my characteristics in my children all the time. Mostly only notice the ones that embarrass me. They look most like me, and I wish they didn't. But they are my children. Undeniably, they are my children. Are we undeniably God's children? His characteristics, which he's known by, is that how we're known? Have we truly been born again that not the character of our earthly parents, but the character of our Heavenly Father is what we're known by? The mercy seat, the very center of all of this worship, is found in mercy. Uh, Think about the New Testament and just go through what? Oh, this is the age of grace. Let me just put it to you straight one more time. God never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, well, the Old Testament God is the same as the New Testament God. Grace and mercy have always been the theme. Even in the midst of the law, the place where God is going to dwell and speak and minister from is mercy. How interesting is that? When I examine this in its purity and take all of religion and man's thoughts out of it, I have an entirely different picture of God in my mind than what Christianity relays and what humanity relays. Mercy. Kindness. Goodness is what the Lord is giving out. Verse twenty three, you shall also make a table of acacia wood, two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its width, a cubit and a half its height. You shall surely or you excuse me, you shall overlay it with pure gold, and make a moulding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a hand breadth all around. You shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. You shall make it um, for, make for its four rings of gold and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. The rings shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold that the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So, you know, all of this gold, all of this wealth, you get specifically uh, to the table that's described in the showbread here. Um, Moses is being told repeatedly to do this according to the pattern which he'd seen. Do this exactly according to what you saw. We discover here and throughout that what Moses is being shown is the throne room of God. He's seeing heaven. So what he's constructing is reflective of that. You're, you're seeing where God dwells. Heaven, his throne, overshadowed by the cherubim. Their spring wings Spread out, facing only inward. You're looking at a small representation of the throne room of God. Here, you know, this table uh, that's going to contain this red overlaid with gold. You get to the place where you're thinking, like, that's just a lot of gold. Yeah, well, in heaven, it's just building material. It doesn't hold any value there. Nobody's like locking up everything they're concerned about the you know they're paving their streets with it you know can you s- just see the big dump truck backing up to the big pave machine and just all gold going in and just they're just driving down the street and the flaggers are waving people it's just pavement it holds no value what's the what's the value above anything else in heaven is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The perfect God Himself became a man and let humanity torture Him to death. That's the greatest value when you look upon the throne and you see the Lamb that was slain for our sins. Everything else pales in comparison. We get so enamored with things that hold value on earth. They're meaningless in the presence of the Lord. 25-30 You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, the flowers, shall be of one piece. The six branches shall come out of its side. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. Now, it's seven branches, Three on each side, one in the center. We're going to have the description of the seven lamps that go on each of these stands before we're done. Uh, This is not uh, the menorah we see of other circumstances. This is the one that belongs to uh, the tabernacle and the worship of the Lord. Here, all hammered work and these six, three on each side, outer branches, center shaft. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms at, on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower. Three bowls made like an almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstands, on the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossom, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece, of all of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall... Arrange its lamps so that they give light to the front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold, and it shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Don't deviate from that pattern. Lots of gold, lots of ornament. Lots of light and lampstands described here. So the lamp is almost certainly that Middle Eastern lamp that has an opening at the top where you can pour the oil in, recap it. It has a wick that comes out, and you can light that. Now, these seven seem to be that shape uh, that the Lord is describing, shape them like an almond. So this whole thing has the resemblance, the knobs on it, uh, the knots for the actual construction of the thing, look like a golden almond tree with fire on it, with illumination and light. Uh, God probably chose that because each year the almond tree is the very first tree to blossom in Israel. Lots of other flowers blossom, but as far as the trees and putting forth their beauty, it's a real sign of fruitfulness. When the, when the almond trees begin to blossom, then the mindset of the gardeners and the farmers is now the planting and now the life can begin. Now we can actually get to the farming. The season has come and it's time to do the planting and the work. And the so, so the almond tree becomes a symbol of life. Everything they're doing is focused around farming. All of their money comes from farming. Their lives are focused on agriculture. And the almond tree becomes a symbol of Israel, along with many other things. But symbolically, they hold to that. Like, that's, that's our thing. And in the midst of this is life. The very center of their whole existence is focused at looking at the almond tree As the sign and the symbol for the progress and what they're going to be doing together for the next year. You think about the Lord making this the illumination and the symbol for the center of his worship. Light and life. All that they are focused on. That almond tree is representative of it. You think of the ways that this lampstand is spoken of throughout the Scripture and how we're promised that there's a coming day where this lampstand will be plugged right into the olive tree where the olive oil will flow and these lamps will burn unbroken. That's a symbol of the coming day where Jesus Christ is going to rule this planet. His, his life, His light will not just be found in a temple. It won't just be found in one location where everyone has to travel to it it will have that natural form of continuous beauty and light and illumination and life. So the Lord is starting this symbol right here for us, but honestly, this is, again, there's a much greater fulfillment in this thing. Where the coming day, where the relationship with the Lord will not be like it is now. It's going to be directly plugged in. It's not gonna be a matter. Each one of these lamps currently you have to go to the lamp, you know, take it off, put it out, open it up, pour the oil in, trim the wick, recap it, put it back, relight it. It has to constant maintain. It sounds similar to your church experience. Right? Gotta dismantle, you know, uncap, refill, reignite, begin again. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Either you guys have just not had enough caffeine yet. So this promise given to us, these symbols are not mild. It'll be an amazing thing to say. You know what? I'm gonna be gone for a few months because I'm just I'm gonna go see Jesus, like face to face. He will someday have a throne on earth in a specific location, and you can enter into his presence. This is the promise we have t- this morning as we shared in communion. The bread and the cup. Do this in remembrance of me until I come again. Right? Don't just do this in remembrance of me because I was here once. Right? I shall return. We save that for you know, generals who never show back up. Jesus Christ is going to return. We hold communion to remember that. This, this lampstand, you know, you can be reading through these things like, okay, right, you hit the Ark of the Covenant, and now you did the showbread, and now you're on the lampstand. Now what's next? Understand that what's being portrayed here when Moses is being told, you build this exactly like the pattern that you saw. He's seeing heaven. He's seeing the presence of the Lord and relaying this to us. We need, we need to be people who have our hearts and minds. Now that old statement you know, oh, that person's so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. It's, it's a ridiculous statement. This, that's not possible. Now, let me, let me say this. It's possible to be so arrogant in your religion that no one around you likes you. That's common. So heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Usually that just equals religious arrogance. Okay? But if you're truly heavenly minded, you're the most earthly good to everyone else in the room. If you have your heart and your mind fixed on the presence of the Lord, the someday where these things are seen for what they actually are, not as these small representations. That's what we're all looking forward to. I hope you have your heart and mind fixed on that. Not in just, oh, well, it's Sunday. We probably ought to go to church. and Okay, the pastor read those things. So yes, maybe next week he'll do something out of the New Testament. because That was really boring. All of this is pointing our hearts and minds toward what Christ is gonna. I want to see all of this, you know, what this represent what this represented. How detailed can you get when you're going, well, the entire throne room looks like well, sort of like this metal box. Right? You guys ever like held a like Ferrari matchbox in your hands? The door is actually open. Cool as it is, it's not the actual Ferrari. Pour water on it all you want. It stays the same size. It's just a small die-cast representation of the real thing. This is just a small die-cast representation of the real thing. I want to see the real thing. And we're going to have the opportunity to. I hope you fix your minds on that that you're not reading through this thinking about it like oh it's just you know the law it's the boring part of the bible there in the beginning so wait till you get to judges that's way more interesting. No. No this is a representation of where we're going to you know dwell eternally in the presence of the Lord. These things are meant to inspire your heart and mind. you know? Study the details of the matchbox, because <laughs> someday, the real one's arriving, the diecast will become reality, and you're going to see this face to face. I hope your heart is thrilled with the thought of these things seeing them and what they represent, the presence of the Lord. Amen. We'll stand and pray. We'll pick up with chapter 26 next week. Father, I thank you for your love and your mercy. I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. I pray every one of us has already accepted and received your Holy Spirit. Lord. The refilling, much like these lamps, much like we see the apostles asking for, to be filled again and refilled and continuously and the, the admonition of Paul to be constantly being refilled. May we be those people who burn brightly for you, who are plugged directly into the living water which flows through us, accomplishes your work, and ministers to the world around us. Lord, use us as your children, as your sons and daughters. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.